Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. On each episode of our show, we'll speak with a top scientist in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we'll talk with Kenneth Arrow and Timothy Bresnahan, colleagues in the Department of Economics at Stanford University and co-editors of the Annual Review of Economics. Timothy Bresnahan is chairman of the Economics Department at Stanford and has made significant contributions in the study of industrial organization and the economics of technology. Kenneth Arrow is a pioneer in neoclassical economic theory, breaking ground in social choice theory and general equilibrium analysis. He was a joint winner of a 1972 Nobel Prize in Economics and winner of the 2004 National Medal of Science. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure to be with you. Professor Bresnahan, let's start with you. Uh, Based there in the heart of Silicon Valley, you've written a lot on the tech industry. What has interested you most about this work? So the, the late 20th century had a remarkable coincidence of technological opportunity and growth needs. The growth need of the last 50 years has been for something to permit white-collar automation. Uh, Since the Industrial Revolution over the previous 250 years, the rich economies had made enormous progress in industrial automation, which mostly hits blue-collar work, human physical labor. And uh, white-collar automation circa the end of the Second World War uh, was uh, increasingly a problem. We were putting more and more of our most skilled and trained people into work uh, that was not increasing dramatically in productivity. Computing technology, information technology, networking technology, software technology has both shaped that white-collar automation opportunity and been shaped by it. So I've been interested both in the influence on the direction of technical change in computing software and networks of its biggest customer, which is white-collar automation, and the influence of uh, computing and networking on things like the income distribution of the rich countries, where the increase in the demand for skills, which has emerged as a result of computer-based white-collar automation, is very large and has contributed to a significant spread out in the income distribution of the rich countries over the last half century. For either of you, how is the current economic crisis you know, there are 20th century opportunities for more white collar work, but right now there are very few jobs. There, that's going to be a problem. Of course, we have had business cycles. Let me me first emphasize that the the modern economy, the capitalist system, has been marked by recurrent deficiencies of demand, current situations where people are put out of jobs. That's not new. Uh, even uh, not, not, even if you leave out the Great Depression, and you shouldn't leave that out by any means, you've had uh, recurrent uh, b- bouts of unemployment and even of financial crises. We're going back to the early 19th century. This is not a new phenomenon. So it's a clearly an inherent phenomenon of a decentralized system. Um, and uh, the, 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 uh, so I don't expect the problem of getting jobs is not one that's going to be a permanent problem. Now, that said, it may well be that the demand for the, a, a certain uh, kind of highly skilled labor 
um, very highly skilled labor, and which is a very small number of people, may indeed fall permanently. The kind of income represented in the financial sector. The financial sector used to be roughly 10% of the economy. Uh, the, now, it's, the, the profits of financial corporations in 2007, I believe it was, were something like 50% of all corporate profits. This is not a sustainable situation. So the, the question of skills has to be interpreted. There's a big a demand for people making, a, uh, you know, say, the $100,000 level, but there's a demand for people at the million-dollar level, and that part probably will, I, I believe, will at least for a time, for some time, one can never make long-run predictions, but for some time will be a lot less than it is today. So one has to differentiate what you mean by skills here. Uh, they're not, there are uh, skill levels, there are skill levels, and there are ultra-skill levels. There are people in the upper one-tenth of one percent of the distribution, where most of the gains have gone in the last f 10 or 15 years. Let me jump in on this one, too. I, I think one of the things we've learned from the computerization of finance uh, is that the use of information technology in finance both creates very levered opportunities for individuals and groups of people to do tremendous good. But the, the scale of transactions permitted by the computerization of finance uh, also permits a very large scale of efforts of all kinds of cheating, stealing, and chicanery. And the ability of the, of the rest of the economy, particularly of the policy formation uh, part of the economy, both in macroeconomics and in banking and financial regulation, to keep up with that increased scale of, uh, of individuals behaving badly, uh, you know, it, technological change outran the uh, regulatory system. And, we're, you know, we're now in circumstances where we need to continue to get the, the benefits of uh, long-run changes that come from uh, improvements in white-collar work and have the, the regulatory and financial and macroeconomic control systems catch up to them to take out the, the disadvantages. I want to change gears just a little bit. Um, Professor Arrow, you looked at the economics of medical care back in 1963 in a paper you wrote for the American Economic Review. Uh, how do your findings from that time stand up today, especially considering what's going on right now with health care reform? Well, if I may be uh, immodest, I think they've been totally confirmed. Uh, the point I made there was that health insurance, and in fact, not only health insurance, but actually the whole running of the health system, depends on a set of considerations which were not really recognized by economists or by practical people either. And uh, what I really recognized in the, in the analysis of medical care was that the different parties had different information, and they weren't bargaining with each other on the basis of some gains mutually understood. Uh, the doctor knows more about, the, uh, about medicine than the patient does. That's why he's a doctor. Similarly, the insurer... Uh, that, at the time I wrote that, the, uh, these were separate insurance companies. They didn't, the HMO was yet to be invented. Uh, so these were insurance companies which dealt with doctors, reimbursed them for expenses. But, of course, they were not in a position to know the need or whatever that, the value of medical care uh, as well as the doctor did. So the doctor could uh, uh, overly 
prescribed, what's, called, what's sometimes called moral hazard, um, simply because it pleases the patient and it doesn't, isn't costing the patient, uh, or costing the patient less than the cost. So the idea that there are these problems of uh, communication, of that say that people dealing with each other have different information. And then it begins to get very sophisticated. If that person makes an offer to me, he must know something that I don't know. If, if you ask, in fact, why there is any buying and selling on the stock market? Why does anybody, uh, after all, the seller thinks it's better to sell. The buyer thinks it's better to buy. How, they can't both be right. And the, the, the only explanation has got to be something like they have different degrees of information. There are, I'm oversimplifying a little bit. There are other considerations. But I think to explain the, the majority of the transactions, that's still a correct statement. So it turned out this principle, although applied to healthcare, and of course it's showing up today. You, you get the stories about the government getting between the patient and the uh, doctor. Well, the insurance companies and HMOs get between the patient and the doctor all the time. And it's an essential in, the, in any insurance system that's bound to be the case. They have to acquire information. So I think this is a, but I think it's a pervasive tendency in the economic system, which is exemplified very strongly in the healthcare and creates problems, meaning that, um, well, without going to, I could go into more detail, and I'm sure you don't want it, but it means, for example, the idea that, no, that uh, people should not be barred because of previous conditions becomes an essential part of any genuine healthcare reform. Uh, uh, the, and then to enforce that. Now, there is one, I've got to say, there's one consideration in the healthcare issues which I didn't really think about, and that's the distributional. There seems to be a perception, uh, accepted by almost everybody, at least uh, with lip service, that people should not be deprived of healthcare because they can't afford it, of suitable healthcare, what, uh, what that means. And that, so there's a redistribution of them. In other words, the poor should not be deprived of healthcare simply because they're poor. And I think that perception, and applied, of course, to old people in the form of Medicare, applied to uh, 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 working-age people through Medicaid, and the question of extending that is part of the issue. So there's more to the issue than what I said in 1963, but every other thing I said in 1963 is still absolutely applicable. Uh, speaking about Medicare and Medicaid, uh, Professor Arrow, can you talk a little bit more about the role of government as a regulator? Well, uh, the, uh, the government is in the position of being provider uh, as well as a regulator. Right? Because, in fact, something like 50% of all health expenditures in the United States are paid for by the government today. So all the talk about socialization and all that is really a little silly. We're talking about extending it by a few, per, by a, a few percent. The, um, the real problem is the future. Uh, the fact is that our ability to spend money usefully in health is much greater today than it was in the past. That's the, that's the biggest cause. Health expenditures are rising, rising relative to national income everywhere in the world. They're lower. The United States is, by, uh, uh, is spending by far more proportionately than any other country, but every country is, is seeing increasing fractions. And the fundamental reason is that uh, doctors can do things today expensively, which they couldn't do at all in the past. Um, and this is a, the progress. We won't go to the progress, which is very uneven. Some diseases, are, like cardiovascular, are, are vastly, are greatly reduced by expensive procedures, uh, open heart surgery, helicopters flying people, stroke victims in, and such uh, things like that. They weren't available uh, 40 years ago, so you didn't spend the money. So we're going to have to face this question, and the government is going to have to uh, is is in fact, first place paying for it. When it pays for it, it regulates. 
It's going to because it has to control its expenditures. So we have various. There's a vast amount of regulation now. Uh, the uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, in other words, the problem really is arises out of the government's expenditures, which themselves lead to regulations to prevent them from being excessive. And this applies to more than just healthcare, right? Well, well, that particular problem of healthcare is uh, is financially the biggest one. Uh, education, of course, is is a very traditional function of government, and uh, it has some of the, the issues aren't qu- aren't this, quite the same. And of course, there's social insurance, but the Medicare is the mo- uh, medical help. I'm sorry, is by far the most uh, rapidly growing and biggest part of the story. Regulation in other dimensions. I'm not. This is not to say that regulation is not important in other dimensions. I'm saying rather that regulation, like in the financial sector, which is extremely important, and I concur completely with what Tim said, is that uh, it's it doesn't involve government expenditures. It's basically purely regulatory, uh, and that's a different uh, story. Professor Bresnahan, would you like to comment? So, if if you think about ways where. Um, the, the economic well-being of, uh, of people could continue to improve going forward as rapidly as it has over the last couple of centuries. Um, you know, several things come quickly to mind. I mean, probably the biggest is uh, extending the benefits which uh, a few countries, United States, Western Europe, have found from the Industrial Revolution to the rest of the world. Uh, there's an enormous amount to be gained from that. And then if you ask, how about continued improvements in, uh, in economic well-being in the currently rich countries, that, that leads you to a short list of, of really big areas. One's, one is white-collar automation, as I said earlier. Another is healthcare. Uh, some, as we have had some improvements in healthcare and in living standards, we have people who are living longer, who would like to have a better quality of life over their whole lifespan, who would like to have longer lives. There's an enormous opportunity there to, uh, to, create, to create benefit. And the other area, I would say, where there's a cost we didn't need know we had, which is the, uh, the costs of environmental damage. So another area that's very important to uh, continued improvements in human well-being is finding a way to, uh, to minimize and avoid the costs uh, of environmental damage going forward. So I would put uh, healthcare in the equation as a potential area of benefit, agreeing there with Kenneth. I, I also think that, that one of the ways the United States stands out among the rich countries is in the way we finance healthcare is that we've set up a public finance time bomb for ourselves, uh, particularly by giving a a tremendous number of people, my generation, the baby boom generation, is sitting on the right to buy an enormous amount of healthcare services with other people's money, particularly with tax money. uh, And, you know, we, we have not solved the problem of how we're going to pay for all that. So there's, there's the problem. There's a money problem. But I, but I think there's also a tremendous technical opportunity and that that technical opportunity won't be realized unless we get the economics of it right, by which I mean getting the market organization uh, 
the uh, incentives and the, and the regular stru regulatory structures right going forward. I just wanted to uh, stress uh, some of the points that Tim made, particularly uh, uh, he mentioned the environmental problems, and uh, there are two interesting things about that. First place, some of the environmental problems that arouse attention, say, in the immediate post-war period, particularly air pollution and water pollution, have in fact, interestingly enough, been quite well addressed by a combination of regulation, of government works, uh, and this is an example of a successful story. Furthermore, the question of the nature of regulation has come under question. Of course, economists have, been, have always typically argued that simple regulations, say prohibiting something or saying you can't do more than so much, tend to be inefficient compared to saying, well, you can do what you want, but here you've got to pay a tax for it, or you've got to pay a price in some form or another. Uh, and this has been successfully applied to things like uh, emissions from uh, industrial plants. Now, however, we're faced with a worldwide problem of climate change. Uh, I think myself, this is a very, I've read a fair amount of data. I actually had some meteorological training at one point in my life for, for the, uh, so I actually, uh, in fact, and I was taught. One of the things we were taught as lectures was that industrialization means production of carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is going to warm the world. So when the fur came up 20 years later, I said, oh, yes, yes, that's what, that's what I learned. And this, I think this is a serious problem. I think we're uh, some evidence that uh, economic problems in some countries already being, particularly uh, tropical countries, are already being seen. Uh, and this is going to require a form of regulation. Indeed, economists have persuaded <laughs> the world, uh, the world at, some, at least in some level, that uh, cap and trade or taxes or something like that is a superior alternative. It's an, un, unlike many of the problems like uh, air pollution, this is not a national problem, but an international problem. It's a global problem because carbon dioxide spreads around the world in 24 to 48 hours. And uh, uh, how this is a the way it's going to play out politically is, of course, still with us. And what is the role of the economists in this? Well, the economists have been arguing as to the, essentially the, the, the use of the price system as a method of control of, of having, for example, issuing tradable emission permits for of, uh, putting, uh, imposing taxes. Uh, and the, there's been a, quite a bit of, the, uh, of discussion uh, using both data and theory uh, on the questions of the implications of different uh, levels of energy control. The European Union has already adopted this policy. The United States seems to be hovering at the edge of it, finally, after many years of discussion. Unfortunately, some of the emerging countries, which are much poorer, say, well, you, you used up the atmosphere. <laughs> you, you put your carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and created the problem. Why should we suffer? And uh, there's some justice to that point of view. However, it's not going to be very helpful if everybody goes together. Uh, and China and India, particularly, as very large countries, are going to have to be brought on board, maybe in a time-phased manner. But I think this is one of the largest problems facing the world. And we don't have the benefit of a national government, which can, you know, a sovereign nation, which can impose things on us. So the, of course, even within a sovereign nation, we've seen, as we see in the current health discussion, coming to a decision is not easy. But it's even harder when you have many sovereign countries. Professor Bresnahan, what are your thoughts? So the, the economists clearly don't have an enormous amount to bring to the party on the, the physical science of the, of the uh, atmosphere. 
kind of training in meteorology notwithstanding. The, the, uh, I think we should leave a lot of those technical issues to our cousins in the physical, biological, and engineering sciences. The, the question of how to achieve some reduction in BADS, uh, increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere being the big new one, but uh, various sulfur oxides being the, the one of a generation ago. The question of how to cut down on those bads without stepping all over goods, uh, without cutting off economic growth, without uh, ensuring that the self-enriching and industrializing southern half of the world stays in poverty. You know, The question of how to get both the goods and the bats is an economic question, and the question of how to organize regulation and markets to to trade off uh, avoidance of the bads and achieving of the goods is primarily an economic question. And, and as with a number of other, uh, let, me, let me throw in I, I here at this juncture, I think a, a very positive uh, remark about the, the current state of the organization of the economics profession, which is there are a lot of really good young economists right now, more than more really good young economists uh, than in my 30 years uh, in, the, in the profession are working right now. And they're flowing, these really good young people, to the big problems of our day. They're flowing to financial regulation. They're flowing to development economics, meaning the study of the improvements in the currently poor countries. They're, they're flowing to the study of education and crime in the United States. They're flowing to international economics. Um, and they're flowing to the study of environmental problems. So I think we're growing a generation of topically oriented, policy-focused economists who are going to be ready to engage with the, with the details of difficult questions like how should a cap-and-trade system be set up exactly? Because the, the, the market question of exactly how a cap-and-trade system works is as difficult as the engineering question of exactly what would you like to cap. Uh, it's a different question. It's our, it's our ground. And uh, I'm delighted to report that uh, this, this change that comes, I think, largely just from having a lot of really good, good young economists that people are flowing towards the policy problems in enormous numbers. That's a fitting transition to my last question, which is uh, where do you see the field of economics going in the next 5, 10, 30, 40 years? Well, um, there's, a, there's a phrase that has been attributed to many people. Uh, prediction is very difficult, especially of the future. The, uh, I think the, 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 the thing that intrigues me, of course, is that uh, predicting innovation is a contradiction in terms. The new ideas will be the ones that you don't know anything about today. Let me offer, nevertheless, some, some things which I think are, which there are germs today. And one of them which is already getting to be quite well studied is the fact that behavior of individuals is frequently not rational in the sense that the word has been used in economics. Economic have been based on the idea that somehow people are rational, which means a kind of consistency. They process data. 
according to the, the uh, as statisticians would like them to process data. Uh, and uh, there's lots and lots of evidence uh, that this is not true. And there are some generalizations about the ways in which people make mistakes. To my, my own mind, I think the, uh, another very important area is social connect connections. In effect, economists say people interact with each other through the market. They may form opinions, they form beliefs, they have, they have values, but they interact through the market. The fact is, I think that, and especially when you stress the idea of information, that information flows in many ways which are not involved in the market. There's, and we know if you look around, you see there, there's, there is a large body of newsletters and, uh, and information. We know that, that we some detailed studies you can show that people on the inside take advantage of the information they have, which means it spreads, but spreads only gradually over time. Similarly, when there's an innovation, when some new technological, uh, technological development. It doesn't get it, even though it's superior, it does not get adopted immediately. Some people do it, they, the fact that they've succeeded tell, lets other people know that they're, they're, uh, it can be done and so forth. And sometimes, the, sometimes there's extraordinarily long passage, sometimes things are adopted very quickly, and I don't think we entirely know why. But clearly one aspect of the matter is how people are connected to each other. There are evidence on the labor market, how people get jobs is clearly motivated by whom they know. That, 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 for that, there's a lot of direct evidence. So I think the question of social networks and the social connections, not, uh, not just buying and selling, but the, uh, the other kinds of information and other kinds of connections. People prefer to appoint people they know to jobs or something, or get, include them in deals or so forth. So I think there is, uh, I, th I think the sociological side, which the sociologists, I think, uh, could have done more with than they have, uh, is, a, uh, is going to be one very valuable development. Professor Bresnahan? I, I think we're going to see, and again, there's nothing that makes you feel like an old person more than uh, attempting to predict what young scholars are going to do. Uh, but also being an old person uh, gives you the right to predict what young scholars are going to do, and they're, they're polite at least as long as they're in your presence watching you do it. Um, I, I think we're going to see an enormous increase in the uh, volume and policy salience of empirical economics broadly understood. And, and I point to two dramatic changes in the circumstances of empirical economics. One has, has come to us as a gift, which is the uh, increase in computerized record holding. Uh, not just uh, computerized record holding by, in the government's statistical system, but computerized record holding by companies and in markets has created enormous databases which are being exploited in very clever ways to study all kinds of policy problems and to study the behavior which is salient to understanding all kinds of policy problems at a, at a scale never undertaken before because the data access costs were always too high. And the, and the second really big change has uh, we've brought ourselves, which is that there's uh, also been a tremendous increase in economists creating their own data with, uh, with our eyes on the statistical problems that come from using data 
that were gathered uh, for, for non-scientific purposes. And so you see field experiments, uh, especially in the field of development economics. You see interview studies uh, that are tightly linked to existing administrative records in big databases. So, you know, there's both more data that bear on the really econo important economic problems of today and more data being created by young economists that gives them even more purchase on those problems. And, and this data attraction is pulling young people closer and closer towards a wide range of important uh, economic problems. So my, my forecast would be that our practical, applied, engaged with policy side is, is going to grow, grow in strength fairly steadily over the next couple of decades. Professor Arrow, Professor Bresnahan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mia. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.